welcome to the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the insights and analytics pros that you trust. I've so been looking forward to today's episode. It's going to be an amazing episode, and I'm honored to have Elisa Ben with us on the podcast today. Hi, Elisa. Hi. So let me tell you something about Elisa. She's currently the Senior Vice President and Head of Analytics at Canvas Worldwide, which is the world's second largest independent media agency and also the recipient of Adweek's Breakthrough Media Agency of the Year in 2020. But uh, she has actually spent <laughs> the bulk of her career in the music industry in senior roles, really diverse roles in things like strategy and operations and insights and digital program management and all sorts of stuff for really, really cool uh, organizations like Select Management, Rostrum Records, which is Wiz Khalifa and Mac Miller, rest in peace, Universal Music, Warner Music, Viacom, A&R, and the list goes on. But it's how she started her career while she was in college that has me super intrigued, and it will have you intrigued as well, and she's here to tell you all about it. So welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Uh, excellent, excellent. I'm happy to have you here. So, so let's let's start with the uh, analytics stuff. So, how'd you get started in analytics, and uh, and you know why'd you stick around? Um, well, as you mentioned, I spent the bulk of my career about 19 years in the music industry. I was uh, living in New York at the time, and I worked for AOL Music. You all remember AOL, I hope. <laughs> um, the older kind of your older <laughs> audience does. Um, so I was working at AOL Music and the person that did um, some of the reporting uh, had left the company and they needed someone to do their comm score monthly. It came out monthly and, you know, I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll do it because I wanted, you know, I was motivated. I wanted more responsibility. No idea what comm score was at the time. <laughs> no idea what a metric was. Uh, hits. Yeah, I knew what hits were back in the day. Um, <laughs> um both a hit and music and a hit in like digital analytics but right. um so i took that on because it went to like the major executives at, at AOL music and i was like man you know what metrics equals money here okay i should know a lot about it because when i have that information that's how i'm more employable right um so i took that on and i started understanding it and there was a position actually at MTV in their digital analytics department. And I went to work there. And that was sort of my uh, first entrance from marketing, editorial, creative music into, anal I've, I've always been analytical. Like, you know, I bug my mom all the time with why is I still do it and I'm 43 years old. Um, <laughs> and she's like, haven't you learned? You're never gonna know all the whys, the answers to whys. But, and, and I got to say, it was a steep learning curve for me. I remember, you know, how, like it was one thing to do the reporting and, you know, here's sort of some patterns that I'm seeing. Um, but it was the other, there's the other side of it, which is very technical, which I, I think people don't understand that data is actually very technical as well. Right. Um, and to understand, you know, to make sure you have the data integrity and understand how data even gets into a particular platform. I didn't know any of that. So MTV was really my training ground for that. Cool. And 
I learned as so much there. I went home every day with my head hurting. <laughs> there was so much to learn, but I'm glad that I did. And that's, you know, kind of how I got my start. And then I, you know, got to do analytics with music companies it was at MTV. I had always wanted to work for MTV my whole life. Um, huge yeah. Madonna fan. I'll never forget <laughs> watching her. Um, and here I was working for Judy McGrath. I mean, uh, not directly, of course, but yeah. uh, there I was and I was doing analytics and I sort of parlayed that at Warner into Universal. And now, you know, I do it for advertising agencies, uh, particularly Canvas. Yeah, it's so it's been interesting. Cool. You know, I, I look at your career trajectory and, you know, I've always been happy with my own career, but I look at yours and I think, man, if I could go back and do it all over again. Tie those two things <laughs> together, you know, music and analytics. It's just so cool. I, I didn't even know I was doing it. It just kind of happened. I honestly thought I'm going to be a manager with a corner office managing. Eventually I'm going to manage Alanis Morissette and Madonna <laughs> and the All-American Rejects. And like, everyone's going to want to work with me. Didn't quite turn out that way, but I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Okay. Now, now you've kind of tipped your hand a little bit on the next question. So, um, what you did uh, before you worked at MTV while you were in college uh, involves one of those bands that you mentioned. So tell us that story. Yeah, so um, I got my undergrad degree at Oklahoma State University, which is in uh, a town called Stillwater, Oklahoma. A music hotbed, and by the way, right? It, wa it wasn't <laughs> at the time, but I would like to think the band that I worked with helped make that happen. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, it's fam it was famous at the time and still for Garth Brooks. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, in fact, they, there's a house in Stillwater that says Garth and Sandy lived here, like on the actual roof. Um, <laughs> it was right by uh, the campus, actually. So, yeah, so I had like... I was a poor college student so I had about 7,000 jobs I had four actually um one of which was a bartender it was a very bad bartender not good <laughs> with drinks but you did want to come to me because I over poured so as a bartender <laughs> that's a good bartender in my <laughs> yeah. in my book <laughs> if you wanted a mixed drink good luck um I could handle the beer uh, so, uh, so, so it was that I worked at the health department at the time, uh, when there were, uh, filing cabinets and files, I was the one that came in at the end of the day and re had to file everything. Um, uh, it helped that in high school, I also worked in the library. So that was, that was nice. Uh, one of my nice, uh, TA moments. <laughs> um, I also, um, had a job as a radio DJ for the alternative station in Stillwater called the spy. Um, my friend actually now owns it, but it's in Oklahoma city, which is super cool. Um, cool. that we, we remain friends, but anyway, I had the overnights and I was a DJ, uh, name Jane does. Jane does. I'm not even going <laughs> to, Jane does. I'm not even going to tell you what it means or how I got to it. But what I will tell you is that there was a DJ called little Buddha. Um, I just call him Buddha. And, uh, he said, you know what? Uh, I know you want to be a rock star, but if that's not going to happen, clearly it happened. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So uh, you should manage bands, you're organized, you're this, you're that, you should do it. And I was like, what's manage bands? And like I said, I was a poor college student. So um, I went to the library. So for the, for the kids listening, the library is a place that you would go <laughs> where there were books and magazines <laughs> and computers. 
Um, and you know, this was, yeah, this was before, and I'm totally aging myself, but I think I may have already mentioned my age, but um, this was before like Google, this was before, you know, streaming, all of that stuff. It was like way back when like people rarely had personal computers in their houses. That's how old I am, dinosaur. And uh, so I would go to the library and I would read about like music magazines, you know, Rolling Stones, Spin, Hits, they had them. Um, and, you know, I remember one day, I know I make it if I get a subscription to these magazines. <laughs> um, but then I would go to the bookstore and learn about like everything you need to know about the music industry and those types of books that I couldn't afford. Um, but I would sit in the aisle and read and literally mark my page, write it in my notebook, my page and go back every single day. Um, my professor actually jokes around with me about this, but like I was the person you tripped over in the bookstore. Um, so I went back to my, my DJ friend and I said, okay, I'll manage the band. Who's the band? I didn't even know. Right. And there were a bunch of, there, there are two kids or three kids at the time. And, um, he was like, oh, they're kids, but they have potential. And I was like, okay. So I, I drove out to, uh, one of their houses, uh, still living with their parents and, um, they were playing. And I remember thinking, oh man, you're such like, Blink-182 could sue you for these songs, which they were original songs, by the way, but you could tell that they were heavily inspired. Yeah. And um, at the time, uh, it was a band called the All-American Rejects. And uh, there were three of them. Uh, Jesse Tabish was the lead singer. Singer. He eventually went on to do other things. Um, and then you had uh, Tyson Ritter and, and Nick Wheeler. Nick, at the time, was on the drums. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he also moonlighted as a guitar instructor. So I was like, you should play guitar. So eventually he came out front and started playing guitar and Tyson, who was the bass player and had very few songs, but really great pop sensibility, moved him over as the lead vocalist and obvious bass player. And then at the time we would play shows and um, we would have like a backing uh, um, drum track because there were only two of them. And they oh, were 15 and 17. Stealing a job from a drummer. <laughs> <laughs> we eventually got a drummer. Um, but, you know, uh, Nick and Tyson became the All-American Rejects. And, you know, I managed them. I was their publicist, their booking agent. I bought them the van that they later called Big Boobs McGee. Probably not working at this point. Uh, that, not their, so name, their name, not mine. I'm sorry, it's not PC. Uh, 15 and 17 year boys, you, you can understand. And eventually I became a legal guardian of theirs because in order for them to play in actual bars, um, they needed a parental, they needed a guardian there. And so, right. you know, had, had things signed and, uh, you know, we went on the road, we did some weeknights, you know, we did the Thursday night, penny beer nights and everything, you know, we were everywhere. And, you know, I put them in surrounding areas, we started in the small Stillwater. They became a staple at Mike's College Bar. Started out, you know, you had a handful of fans and it expanded to where like people couldn't even get into that bar when, you know, we, when we actually signed to Doghouse Records. Um, so that was kind of the humble beginnings. And, you know, one thing that st sticks out and I forgot about this until you and I talked earlier, um, we were driving back from Tulsa and I was kind of asleep in the back of the van and they were awake driving. And 
all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, the van's on fire. And I was like, what? And it was like smoke coming out of the front. And I was like, oh my God, get all, all I could think about was get the equipment out. Like yeah. forget our lives, <laughs> but let's get the equipment out. I don't know. <laughs> like any good manager was also a Absolutely. By <laughs> so literally three of us are carrying everything out of the van and no joke, it goes and explodes in the front. Oh it was God. the wild, never has happened to me again. It was the wildest thing that happened to me. I, I have no idea what happened or why it started doing that. I just remember being waking up and being like, get out the equipment. <laughs> um, so that's a funny memory that I, that I have from those days. But yeah, I managed them from 1999 um, through the uh, getting them in that doghouse deal. I remember being uh, in, in big wig New York offices, being like, if you don't believe in the All-American Redux, you don't know music. And now <laughs> I'm like, now I'm like, who was I? My friend, <laughs> Harry, my friend Harry and I joke about that all the time. He loves to tell that story. Like you're, you're in my office. Like I just, I sign like the flaming lips, you know, and you're like, you don't know music. <laughs> no sign this band. Uh, but yeah, that was a really nice humble beginnings and like all, I say humble beginnings because they eventually, you know, uh, got, got a buzz and, you know, we started talking to major labels and started this little bit of a bidding war. And around that time, Green Day's manager wanted to manage them. So it was like, peace out. Pat oh. Magnarell is, uh, is in. So, you know, I was brokenhearted for a very, very, very long time. And, yeah. uh, you know, now looking back, it was like, I'm so glad that that happened because it taught me so much about business and life and, you know, things don't work out the way you expect it. And you got to learn how to uh, adjust. And it taught me that. Wow. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. But it, but it also must be, I mean, thinking about some of the seminal decisions that you affected early on that, that contributed to the eventual success, you know, over 10 million yep. records sold and all that good stuff. It, there must, it must be gratifying for you, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm proud of that work that we did together. It was the stone uh, for my career and for their career. And quite frankly, it's one of those, those moments in life where um, people come together uh, in a professional, um, I mean, we were kids, I was a kid too, but to do something creative and great that you believe in. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's really interesting. I don't think for the rest of my life, at least professionally, I've ever believed in something to the point where it like manifested. And so yeah. it was, it, you know, that time was, that time was fun. It was part of my growing up. Uh, it's, so, it it's good. so cool. Such a, such a fascinating story. So you mentioned that it taught you a lot about life. Um, mm -hmm. Curious to know what are some of the the, the biggest lessons that you took from that experience that you applied into your professional career? Yeah, so I work with data, right? And mm -hmm. the interesting part about data, and I'll say that experience is this, it's that you the data can tell you one thing, but when you're working with brands, when you're working, you know, when I was at Universal, there's, there's a creativity to it as well. So mm -hmm. data can take you so far, but you also have to trust that human element to it as well. Right. Like any marketing that you do, it's, you know, a consumer isn't just analytical. They're also, they have a heart and a pulse and you got to take into account that. And COVID is a really great um, example of that where, right. you know, working in advertising, it's not about 
what can I sell? What's a price point? It became more about like, we're in this together. And so I think that is a really great example of, of marrying the two because yeah, we're still using data um, to identify and to personalize and create the right messaging at the right time to the right people. Um, and it almost became you know, more important than ever that to the right audience, the right messaging at the right time. Um, but, but that's just a really great example of the, the human element behind the analytical, which has really been a trajectory of my entire career, actually. Right. Yeah, there, there aren't a lot of people that can really get that uh, at the level of depth that, that you've been able to. So that's, uh, so that's a great point. Uh, so, given your unique perspective, uh, and this can be this answer can be COVID related or not, right? I'm just kind of curious from your perspective what uh, what does the future look like for analytics? <laughs> What's important? What matters? Um, here's here's what I think um, I've noticed has been a problem. It's been you know, getting data together is not easy. It takes a lot of money, the right talent, uh, the right infrastructure. So I think in this new world that we're living in, in data science, machine learning, advanced analytics is gonna be more important than ever to build in, uh, to have this technolo these technology offsets to create mm -hmm. automation, to get people out of, um, reporting and manual work and into that high value work to be a strategic partner with, you know, our clients or whomever, you know, whether your client side or your agency side. And I, I think that's really going to be the challenge because, you know, also you can't just be all data science all the time. COVID, mm -hmm. you know, told, told us we need to be able to relate. But I think, you know, machine learning and data science is gonna help us create efficiencies that we never had before. Um, in right. some ways, you know, back in the day, everything was so manual and then we um, were able, technology allowed us to be more nimble. And in a lot of ways, we're kind of going back to the beginning to start all over this evolution uh, of new ways of doing things. Um, and, you know, machine learning isn't just about data, it's also about process. It's, it's making a process easier for whether it's an organization um, or whether it's, you know, things as simple as um, testing environments. Right. Um, I'm not going to get geeky excited, but um, <laughs> that's, that's kind of something that, that I think about all the time. And I think there's an evolution that's happening right now in the space. And, and that's, I, I if COVID has taught me anything, it's that I can't tell you in five years what's going to happen. Right. I I, yeah. I don't even know what's happening by June 15th when allegedly the California economy is going to open up. But what I can say is that from a marketing perspective, we've learned a lot during this time. And, um, you know, like I said, right audience, right time, right messaging. Um, right messaging is more important than ever. And, you know, data allows you to understand that, but the creative coming together with that is how you actually have impact. Yeah, that's great. So I, I love that point about sort of the technology 
um, taking taking care a lot of a lot of the things that you know were previously manual, um, and it feels it feels like maybe there's that promise now where it's freeing up time to do a lot of the heavy thinking, the deep thinking mm -hmm. uh, that makes analytics a whole lot better. So in a way, it's the human component becomes even more important. Yep, I agree. Yeah, totally. Cool. cool. Awesome. Um, so switching gears a little bit here. So this is a podcast. Uh, undoubtedly, you've participated in Wait, podcasts. Wait, it's a podcast? It is. It is. Believe it or not. It oh, is. <laughs> I thought we were just having a typical Zoom meeting. What are you talking about? I'm surprise. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I love the element of surprise. <laughs> and that's what I'm here for. So, <laughs> okay. So um, what are some, some uh, other media, be it podcasts or, or something else that you find uh, enlightening or enjoyable, both either personally or professionally? Um, so I've been really listening to a friend of mine named Jason Flom. He has this wrongful conviction and especially with everything going on in the world today podcast. And if you haven't heard about it, you know, there's so many, I don't know the stats, but, um, people that are wrongfully convicted every day. Right. And to listen to his podcast is so enlightening and I encourage everyone to go do that. Um, that's the one I want to mention. I want to keep it to one. Um, okay. But, but I like, if he's just a fantastic entrepreneur, like music executive, uh, author, podcaster. Do you, do you call it podcasters? I, Content I so. creators? What it, okay. That works. <laughs> I want to be, you know, I want the right term here. Yeah. You know what? Uh, but, but I, but that's a really cool podcast. Um, and, and cool in the fact that it's also, um, um, calling awareness to a problem that we have. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's great. Uh, and I'll make sure to link to that podcast. Uh, oh, cool. So people can easily find it when I get this one. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Cool. Uh, all right. So uh, the all important question, the one that uh, that I have really been waiting for, um, especially given your background. So you're stranded on a desert island. You have three records only three uh, at your disposal of your, chose, of your choosing to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are they, Lisa? This is harder than any LSAT question, <laughs> by the way. Um, oh my goodness. Uh, without, a, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, Fleetwood Mac rumors. Ah, um, classic. Yep. You know, uh, what comes to mind, I love this album. I go back to it all the time, is Pete Yorn's Music for the Morning After. That's a really good one. Um, Very nice. And, you know, listen, I am Madonna through and through. So <laughs> she's she's my she's my girl. So I will have to say Madonna like a virgin. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got an uh, awful lot of nostalgia for the old uh, Madonna and MTV days as well. So big fan. <laughs> so, so now my question is, what's yours? <laughs> uh, uh, hmm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not prepared to answer that question. So okay, it, well, it totally I gotta depends. tell you, a, a friend of mine said you should always have your top um, 100 songs or albums or whatever it is. I think we started with songs because we knew albums were too difficult, too difficult. So let's do songs. So it was like, yeah, I'm gonna do a list. So I have a Spotify list, and it's at 563. So my <laughs> goal in life, <laughs> yeah, my goal in life is to whittle it down to 100. So, I mean, people just come out with good music all the time. Like, I mean, Billie Eilish, like, 
where did she come from? <laughs> like, you know, it's like, gosh, yeah. so talented. Absolutely. Anyway. I couldn't agree more. It's like something completely out of left field, like you've never heard before. So it just changes yeah. the music landscape. You know, kind of like Slayer, Rain and Blood, or, you know, <laughs> the first Suicidal Tendencies record. So I'm giving some hints to, you know, what my Desert Island disc might be. But <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm gathering, I'm gathering. It's just, I'm gathering. It's, it's just too hard. It's to hard. <laughs> and That's you know what? Other are, people. <laughs> songs are just as hard. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, I'm going to take away from this interview that I really need to think about this question more that I'm asking of others. I need to be ready for the answer myself. But <laughs> I love, I love uh, the story of your career, Elisa. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I wish it were my story, I must say. <laughs> it's just it's just so cool. And I really appreciate you sharing it on the podcast. Uh, and next time we chat, I'm going to be digging deep for other stories because I can't get enough of that stuff. <laughs> oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast, Elisa, and rock and roll. All right. <laughs> All right have a good one.